0: Hi, this is Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks, and I want to tell you about the brand new book Richard Petty and I have coming out in November called The Rise of Technosocialism. Feel free to check out www.riseoftechnosocialism.com for more information on the book and where you can get your copy. I'd be very grateful for your support and consideration of this new book, The Rise of Technosocialism.
1: Is breaking banks.
2: Welcome back to Breaking Banks. I'm Amber Bucher, and I cannot wait to dig into this conversation today with two very special guests. We're joined by our very own Brett King. He's a tech founder, podcast host, author, futurist—probably a half dozen other titles. Uh, but today, Brett's here to talk about his latest book, "The Rise of Techno Socialism." And to round out the discussion, we're joined by the eminent slinger of snark mr Ron Shevlin Ron is the director of research for cornerstone advisors and writes a regular column for Forbes called the fintech snark tank in case you've been living under a rock and didn't know that yet uh and in that blog for Forbes Ron recently reviewed Brett's book so Brett Ron thank you both for joining us how's it going
0: it's going great mm-hmm. Thanks. thank you both for um it's 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 a bit weird to be on the other side of the microphone. I was thinking the
3: same thing. Remember? I was thinking, you know, I've I've uh, been a guest on Breaking Banks. I've co I've guest hosted Breaking Banks, but never had a chance to actually talk to Brett on Breaking
0: Banks. There you go. We're breaking new ground as, with oh, Breaking yeah. Banks. So, yeah.
2: Don't worry, you. guys. let will try to go easy on you. <laughs> <laughs> No, this was a, it was a great book, really interesting read, and love the opportunity to get my hands on it first. Um, in the book, Brett, you basically posit four possible outcomes for the future, which is fitting since you are a self-proclaimed futurist. Three out of the four are really bleak. Uh, they describe a future that has high levels of chaos and inequality. But the fourth is not so bleak. It's called techno-socialism. So can you help us understand exactly what that is, Brett?
0: Sure. So I think the way to think about this really is, you know, what is, you know, I I use the term in the book liberally, which is optimal humanity. What is the best configuration for human society so that as many people as possible can succeed and be prosperous, you know? Um, and. Um, that's really an economic goal more than anything else. But I guess the difference between techno-socialism and what you would normally call socialism is in, in um, the area of socialism, we talk about workers owning the means of production, right? Um, and that's uh, so, sort of a core economic framework for that. But in techno-socialism, we talk fundamentally about the role of work itself changing. So it's more about citizens owning the economy or the economy prioritized around citizens first and foremost, because if you look at the challenges we have coming up, Obviously, we've got inequality. If you live in the United States, we have the highest inequality in the history of the nation, and that's a problem we have to solve. That's been accentuated by the pandemic, and it's also going to be accentuated by the introduction of artificial intelligence, which uh, results in techno-unemployment, and of course, by climate change. So in all of these you know, potential futures that we talk about, um, you know, the, the average citizen is, is obviously going to have greater and greater difficulties being a part of the, uh, um, the economy. And so um, how do you get the economy working um, optimally for the citizens is really the economic theory of techno-socialism. But um, at, at, from a philosophical perspective, it's that humanity is at, at, at our best – when we work together. And that technology will enable us to do that in very different ways over the future and solve um, problems that we think are unsolvable today. Like, you know, who's gonna pay for universal healthcare and things like that, you know, um, as an example.
3: So Brett, let me just jump in and and ask to clarify, because first of all, let me tell you, I've read all your books, I think except for one, the bank, the branch one or whatever, but bank 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, augmented, love them all. And I think this is your, really your most important book, book to date, um, for sure. But I'll be honest, I, I wrestled a bit with coming away with getting a clear view of what techno-socialism was. And as I kind of grapple with that and listen to your explanation, I kind of wonder, are you referring to, like, techno-governance? Um, because, you know, obviously the socialist word either you know, yeah, know appeals to some people or doesn't. I get your definition, but it seems to me like what you're advocating for is the role of technology in in governing, and I don't mean that in a in a negative sense, but in a positive right. sense.
0: look, that that's definitely part of it. Um I mean, you know Ron, you know we we talked about this book probably two years ago as I was writing this. and the ter- the name, you know, was a cause for concern for, for many of the people I spoke to. They said it's going to be divisive. It's going to be, it's going to, you know, c- certain, um, you know, people are just going to right away t- see that title and, um, you know, and, and be pushed away from it. But, you know, we experimented with so many different potential terms of describing this. So, we, we you know, uh, one of the titles we looked at was, you know, you know like, the rise of optimal humanity we looked at techno humanism techno collectivism these different terms that could uh, create this a- and i'll say you know we we chose the term techno socialism with purpose because we wanted a reaction a visceral reaction we wanted people to say oh i got you know i i, I i've got to prove this wrong right and so we wanted the debate and so in in many ways um, you know techno socialism may not be the the, the most accurate title um, in, in terms of describing what's in the book. but then you know we, it, we think it was the best match because it, it more is a philosophical approach. and um, you know what's, what if you put aside the economic issues of socialism and how it's perceived as in competition with capitalism, um, you know, socialism was trying to solve, a pro- solve the problem of inequality, right, in, in many respects. Um, and, but, it, it, you know, it wasn't functionally really able to do that. There's very few examples of where pure socialism actually worked effectively. Having said that, when you throw in technology – Um, then we think that a lot of the problems that socialism was trying to solve, we can address over the longer term because we simply reduce the cost of government. We make government more effective. We make the economy work better for um, the collective humanity that it's supposed to serve. And that often came up as um, sort of a key question in the book is what is the purpose of the economy? Um, Is it to serve a very small group of, you know, the richest citizens, or is it there to serve everybody? And if it's there to serve everybody, then, you know, economically, a lot of markets, you'd have to say, are are a failure in respect to that intent. And so it may not be the perfect title, but it's a title that we hope will get people talking. And that was ultimately, you know, how how we're trying to use it.
2: It's interesting that this is really kind of a, a high minded philosophical debate that you're looking to pull out of folks when it, there are so many pieces in the book where you've got kind of graphs and charts with labels and dichotomies. I know that that's one of the things that Ron talked about in his review of the book um, with some of those dichotomies and labels might present a bit of a simplistic view of the factors at play here. So Ryan, how are you thinking about the book? Is it primarily um, useful as a thought exercise or, or how would you recommend kind of looking at those pieces?
0: Yeah, I
3: think the and I think maybe, maybe Amber, before I address that, let's ask Brett to like describe the the, the outcomes because I think those four things are are very key. And then I'll get into sort of my, what my reaction to that was.
0: Great, yeah, I'd be interested in that too. Um, so, when it, obviously what started this off was the the view of inequality, and we had to rewrite, um, you know, s- significant portions of the book during the pandemic because the pandemic really gave us a lot more data to work with in respect to inequality and how inequality could get worse fairly quickly, you know, um, with these crises. Um, and so inequality had to be a core part of it. So, um, you know, we've got this magic quadrant of the four outcomes. And so inequality is the, is the first axis. Um, so if at one end you have it inequality, your other end you have, it, um, you know, uh, equality or inclusiveness. Um, more significantly. And so when you look at that as a spectrum, from a political philosophy at least, you're looking at economies that prioritise um, uh, the whole versus individuals, right? And so when you, um, like you could look at, U- Europe tends to be more collective in its policy setting, whereas the US tends to be more individualistic and in emphasising the individual. So that's, they two examples of that spectrum. The other spectrum was just whether we want you know, ordered, you know, an ordered transition to this future through these crises, or whether we are going to keep arguing about that and, you know, get to this point where, um, you know, the chaos ramps up before we have to address it. So chaotic versus planned, or you might call it in classic science fiction terms, dystopian versus utopian. And so that's how we mapped out these four quadrants. And so on the failed side, on the chaotic side, you have two scenarios most like, you know, that are most likely outcomes. One is where you have failed states because we just waited too long. So think about say Bangladesh or the Maldives, um, both that are at a significant threat of uh, um, you know, rising sea levels where 80% of their infrastructure and landmass is gonna be affected by sea rise. If we wait too long, you know, we have failed states. Then we have uh, rejection of technology, primarily around artificial intelligence because of its displacement of um, humans from the workforce. And so, and rejection of science more broadly, which we, you know, it it sounds a little far-fetched, but we, you know, we see with the anti-vaxxer movement and things like that uh, in in sort of broad distrust of science and technology. We see it with Facebook, um, you know, in respect to people's perception of Facebook's uh, role in society. Um, And then you have the planned uh, outcomes. So of the planned outcomes, you have two. One which is optimal for everybody and as planned in terms of as, as inclusive as possible. Um, and then more exclusionary planned outcomes where you have the rich get richer, the poor get the picture as uh, we we say in the book, which is actually a line from a midnight oil song. You can tell I'm Australian. Um, but where inequality sort of gets baked in more permanently through through policy. So we saw those as the four possible outcomes. Now there were a couple of others that um, we could have put if we configured that graph a slightly different way, but ultimately the really significant point was: is this something that is um, you know inclusive and positive for humanity broadly, or are there you know is the problem of inequality and the chaotic problem? Of you know, just waiting too long to do stuff, was, was that going to dominate our future? and that that was that's really what the book is trying to get at. That if we want an optimal future, um you know we have to sort of change philosophically the way we think about other humans in the mix.
3: Yeah. so thanks, Brett, for, for doing that. So let me share with you kind of what my reaction that was, and see how you respond. I felt it was a little bit of an artificial distinguish uh, distinction between these categories, and that. You know, I didn't think that there's an all or nothing here. Like it seems to me that we can be in shades of gray, um, and that we can be in you know any particular society within the glo- you know the global environment it can be in multiple camps at the same time. So, for example, I thought China was a good example. You know, highly automated. Uh, in the tech you know a trade of the techno-socialism quadrant, but I would think, you know, fairly general autocratic rule, uh, a trade of the, I think it was the failed to stand, you know, quadrant. So sure. it felt to me like while you were painting the picture, which I think is very helpful for the four things, it's like where are we at any point in time? Is probably some combination of of all four. And you know, my I always feel like that there's a lot of people who just uh, you know, kind of want to get to this nirvana state in in a one jump thing, and we right. just don't, we just don't ever get there.
0: Society just doesn't work like that, right? Um, and so, society is messy and chaotic by its nature. And you're absolutely right. We are going to see all four of these uh, cases simultaneously over the next thirty years. Um, I, I, I guess. The the point of this discussion was, if you're aware of the outcomes of each of these different approaches, then you know I, we hope that incentivizes us to say no. We should choose the optimal configuration for humanity. That all of these other outcomes, you know, if we continue to debate them or allow them, you know, that um, that's not the optimal uh, optimal outcome. And And it was it, at its heart, I guess the book is really about policy reform and economic reform, and using these arguments as a kickoff for for making changes that you know help us have more cohesive societies. the The problem that we've seen in in recent times is social cohesion, is gets very problematic when you have um failures in policy, when you have division around inequality. Um and so uh, you know, the the again, philosophically, the argument is humanity is at its best when we work together. And of those four outcomes, you know, techno-socialism does tend to lead to a more cooperative, collaborative sort of viewpoint. But you're right. Um, we are going to see all four of these um scenarios play out simultaneously over the next 30 years.
3: So, Brett, let me ask you one other thing, because you've you've referred to the term equality many times just in the past five, 10 minutes already. And I, hearing that and also through reading the book, I, I couldn't help but wonder, you know, if you were really referring to uh, equity or inequity versus inequality. And let me read you this definition. I, I pulled this off of nice. a of a website, uh, it's some medical journal, uh, and I'm going to kind of uh, g- generalize it a little bit because it's talking in terms of healthcare, but I, I think it applies in a-, in a more generic sense. It says, "Inequity and e- inequality; these terms are sometimes in- are sometimes confused, but are not interchangeable. Inequity refers to unfair, unavoidable differences arising from poor governance." corruption or cultural exclusion, while inequality refers to the uneven distribution of resources as a result of genetic or other factors of the lack of resources. And I can't help but feel that, from what I've read in the book and from what you are saying, that you're really talking more about inequity versus inequality.
0: No, I I think um, where we talk about the system being broken, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It is inequity, um, but when you look at the solution set, um, it often does come down to resource allocation and prioritisation of resources. Um, you know, and when you when you look at the gap between the rich and the poor, um, you know, in markets like the US, um, you know, you could argue that that's an you know, inequality is an economic viewpoint of lack of availability or or poor distribution of resources. And so the example we use in the book is that, um, you know, the post-Second World War uh, US economy was the greatest economy the world has ever seen. But part of the reason for that was this wealth um sort of bell curve of distribution of wages and wealth, you know, um in the 1950s and 1960s. That led to incredible growth in consumption and so forth. So if you, you know, that's a resource allocation issue, resource allocation being wealth. Um, and so if we can get, and China, the reason their one of the reasons their economy is growing is they have that strong middle class, um, you know, wage growth. And in the 1980s, the US sort of froze, and the UK froze wage growth. You know, we haven't seen significant wage growth in the 1980s, but the prices have gone up, like especially right now with inflation. And so it, the, the inequality of, of income, um, you know, sort of leads to inequity. Um, so I think the two are very closely linked. I don't think they're um, mutually exclusive in, in that respect. But we attack the resource allocation problem you know using technology to reduce the cost of resource allocation or make resource allocation more efficient so that we get um, more of that bell curve distribution again rather than um, you know what we have today so in pure economic terms um you know the the more evenly wealth is distributed um, the more uh, the the more healthy an economy is and the more prosperous it is for everyone right that that that's the the core argument
2: so this kind of goes to one of the discussions in the book. Was talking about how technology will make resource allocation more efficient, make the government more efficient, and therefore uh, folks will not try to. I, I, folks may not try to push back against that if we're getting to this more equitable and equal outcome. But I'd like to push back against that a little bit because you also talked about Will Durant, who is a great historian who notes that every time we become closer to a diamond shape. Right. Uh, economic model, diamond shape, meaning that there's a large middle class and very small lower class and very small kind of ruling wealth class, the, the small ruling wealth class begins to try to outmaneuver and use their influence to regain more of that power that they have potentially lost. So, so where, where does that leave us if our, our, our human nature is going to keep us fighting against that equality to some respect? Look,
0: I think, uh, you know, um, Ron made a very good point in his article on Forbes is that when we talk about these political divisions, they're artificial creations, right? And, um, you know, th- there's a, um, you know, when we get people fighting against each other, you know, um, then it's a distraction from the problem, which is one of the tools that, the wealthy elite have have used in, in the past. They've sort of created these uh, arbitrary or, you know, abstracted divisions and we get, get us fighting so that they can uh, capture the wealth. Um, but having said that, um, the two, you know, the two future state problems, the, the, the impact of artificial intelligence and the impact of climate change, those are things that um, ultimately that, that, that sort of um, culture of division won't work. And it'll become fairly clear at some point of time, we think, where we need to have collective uh, approaches. Like we say, there's no such thing as national climate change policy, because if the US is is doing everything right in climate, in in respect to climate mitigation, reducing carbon output and so forth, but China's building 100 new coal plants next year, then you know we can't fix a problem. So ultimately, at some point, you know it may have to get a lot worse. You know human society is going to say, that's it. We have to work together. And at that point, I think that philosophical shift solves uh, many of the problems that that we have. But uh, you know um, like, um, if you if I, I think the pyramid-shaped um scenario, that's allowed to exist because of a couple of things. One is lack of transparency, so that a lot of the control mechanisms that the uh, the the wealthy elite use to control economies, I think those are becoming more transparent, and so we're going to get clearer pushback. And I think that the the sort of artificial division that allows that to occur and um you know changes our focus away from that, it it becomes uh, less and less uh, um palatable in the future. But you're right, you know, historically, um, diamond-shaped economies are unstable. Um, Hopefully, we can sort of change that mix, you know, through technology and transparency.
1: If you work for a bank or a credit union, you already know that this strategic planning and budgeting season is filled with more uncertainty and risk than ever before. And the answers you need aren't in your boardroom or in your spreadsheet models. At Alloy Labs, we've worked with some of the most innovative financial institutions in the world, and our industry-leading tools and frameworks can help you create clarity out of chaos and prioritize what are always limited resources to help you defend and extend your existing business while you're creating viable options for the future. From intensive corporate programs custom-tailored for your situation and your team to bite-sized digital workshops where you can learn from multiple bank perspectives, We can help you forge ideas into results quickly and cheaply. Learn more at AlloyLabs.com. Times of great change are also times of great opportunity. And the time to act is now. AlloyLabs.com.
2: So is it your argument then, Brett, that we are on the precipice of changing essentially the course of history if that's if those diamond shaped economies haven't worked up to this point what kind of tipping point what kind of inflection point are we at now that makes this time different
0: well you know it, it, the ai thing and the role of work is sort of really core here because if you think about the last 300 years with capitalism adam smith wealth of nations supply and demand the assumption always is that a a a, a highly functioning society will provide a hundred percent or full employment, um, and so the you know the whole basis of economic theory and supply and demand you know there's debates around what full employment means and how that affects society. You know, Friedman had a very different view of that to Adam Smith, for example. Um, you know, and Thomas Piketty has a very different view from Friedman. But it's it's that how effectively does that Production mechanism in society work to ensure everyone has a living wage and can uh, survive. Um, But artificial intelligence is designed to take humans out of the labour market. Um, Now, in the medium term, that's going to require lots of skill set changes. So people involved in human, human sort of process oriented jobs, you know, factory workers and things like that. Let's say they're all automated out by technology. So the argument will be, um, you know, well, you know, we need to train them for the jobs that AI will create. But ultimately, the goal of AI is to eliminate human labor from the economy. So at some point in time, supply and demand no longer equates to, um, you know, more jobs. It equates to less and less jobs. And that's a fundamental problem for the philosophy around human society. If you don't work you don't get paid you don't survive right um and and yet if you, that we come to a point where you just can't work there's not enough jobs for humans for you to work anymore then what is the you know what does economic theory tell us about how to deal with those individuals um and that's really the the key problem
3: brad i'm i'm kind of surprised to hear you say this for a couple of reasons First, historically, this doesn't sound like a totally different argument than what might have been uh, argued back in the industrial revolution, where sure. okay, we're going to have automation and, and it's going to put all these people out of business and uh, you know out of work, and it didn't. I'm also kind Unless of Unless you work in
0: farming. But but but. Which went from 80 percent of the, you know, the American population was. But there
3: was a shift and it took some time and there's some, you know, a period of disruption. But but then, you know, look what happened in, in the next 150 years. And so, you know, just like you say, they're inflection points. But the other reason I'm kind of surprised to hear you say this is, you know, you laid out, I think, really cool theses in your book, Augmented. You know that it was about augmenting the humans, not replacing them, which is why I'm kind of surprised to hear you kind of arguing the you know the elimination aspect of this versus the augmentation aspect of this.
0: Well, you know, just like the industrial revolution, the elimination of humans from the workforce is going to take a, a you know extended period of time, many decades, maybe you know a century or more. Um, but certainly by the middle of um this century by 2050 um both in you know there, there, there's there's going to be um clear disruption in terms of working patterns the one saving grace ironically is if we didn't have climate change then the labor force reductions would be far more severe than with climate change, because climate itself, our response to climate planet wide is going to require massive industrialization you know, and, and massive response. So we're talking about um, building you know, seawall defenses around New York and Miami. We're talking about carbon um, sequestration or extraction programs. We're talking about rebuilding the energy grid so it works with batteries and solar and wind instead of coal. Um, you know, all of all of these aspects will create a ton of work but um the you know the question is can capitalism and the free market create those jobs in respect to like mitigating climate change but that's you know it's actually m- more of a governance problem as you said earlier it's it comes back to the fact that well this will require all of the governments of the world to agree on how this should happen to figure out how to fund it it's not a it's the the scale of the climate problem is too big for capitalism to fix on its own Like, what's the economic incentive of extracting carbon out of the atmosphere? Well, if you think of this in terms of VC investment or something like that, the the payoff on investing in carbon extraction technology is just so far down the track that, um, you know, it becomes sort of non-viable from an investment thesis perspective. So you have to have a – but we still have to do it, right? And so then the question is – you know how does that get paid for? We we propose various uh, um, solutions to that. You know, forgiveness of national debt, so that can be used to fund that. But ultimately, it's sort of a regearing of um, you know the economy, where a high percentage of GDP is redirected into making sure that the planet remains livable, right? But um, but it's not capitalism can't come up with that on its own. It has to be uh, it has to be sort of come out of human will.
2: You said these changes take place over time, but in the book, I was terrified when I read that a lot of these big shifts in the workforce are going to happen in the next 30 years, so before I'm even ready to retire. Um, so, so that seems to be coming up actually a lot quicker than than one might think. You talk about infl- other inflection points kind of along this journey to this future state, uh, and the back of the book actually has some really cool timelines for these kind of potential futures, what are some of the inflection points, some of the big headline inflection points that we should be looking out for?
0: Yeah, so one of them, obviously, is as we start to see techno unemployment increasing, And, you know, we we talk about in the book, there's going to be both labor shortages and unemployment around AI because, you know, we're not training, um, you know, our kids for the jobs of the future, you know, in that respect. So we've got a misalignment in terms of education. Um, But... Um, You know, one is our response to AI. So if AI produces high level of unemployment, would there be certain societies where AI would be constrained or banned because of the labor labor force effect? That's one potential inflection point. Um, and that's kind
2: of along the uh, Luddistan. Right, similar, right. Like the word Luddite, right? People right. that reject well, technology. Exactly.
0: Where well, we prioritize humans over the tech, right? Or we tax corporations so heavily for automating you know, society that, um, you know, it slows down the implementation of technology more broadly. Another inflection point is, um, you know, um, China-U.S. relations. relations. That's going to be, you know, we we see it's important right now. Um, You know, we have Russia doing crazy stuff like you know, blowing up satellites in space and things at the moment. It's um, you know, but um you know china, u uh, s relations uh, you know are uh, from a geopolitical perspective, i think more more important and and impactful um, where as China becomes the dominant economy in the world, philosophically, I think for many American economists and you know supporters of, you know, the pure form of capitalism we see in the US, um, I think are going to find that very difficult to grasp. And so would the US respond, uh, you know, with sanctions against China? Could they get the rest of the world to support that? Would there be a military action to sort of try and hold China at bay economically? Um, You know, these are very concerning, um, you know, potential scenarios, but are not unbelievable. Um, And so the China-US relationship and where that goes is is one of those inflection points, um, as is um, you know as uh, techno unemployment starts to hit, and we see more of a need for a social safety net, universal basic income primarily. You know all the entrepreneurs that we put in the book. They all say UBI is going to be necessary. You know, Elon Musk talks about it frequently. Um, You know, Bill Gates has talked about it. He's talked about taxing robots as a way to pay for UBI. Um, You know, uh, Bezos talks about it. So these entrepreneurs, I think they're trying to automate the economy. They can see the need for UBI. But there could be, for example, in the US, broad rejection of that as a scenario. Um, And what what pressure would that put on social cohesion? Well, when you've got very high unemployment rates, particularly youth unemployment, because the education mismatch, you know, that's gonna result in social unrest. So it was sort of like, that's one of those binary choices again, is like you either have UBI or you have social unrest. You can't stop social unrest from happening in high unemployment scenarios, unless you have a safety net. So again, that's a really key inflection point. If we can get around the problem of who's gonna pay for for UBI as uh, employment patterns change. So there are a few of those really critical inflection points, which clearly take us down specific paths, um, uh, you know, in, in terms of our future. And um, yeah, uh, you know, that, that we sort of tried to describe what would be the outcome if we chose those specific paths.
2: You talked about AI, and the ultimate purpose of AI essentially being to take us out of the workforce. A similar kind of theme that you talked about in the book was the world of crypto, blockchain, and DeFi, which arguably the role of those mechanisms is to take banks and other financial intermediaries out of the equation when it comes to the financial system. This was something that Ron talked about in his review of the book, and obviously the podcast is Breaking Banks. So I want to make sure that we touch on that. Um, how do those elements feed into the rise of techno socialism, and what does that mean for TradFi?
0: TradFi, yes. Um, <laughs> Traditional trad-fi finance. Versus, I know, I know, I like that. I haven't heard it called TradFi before, but that makes do you perfect trad-fi? sense. It makes perfect sense. Cfi, um, centralized finance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, I mean, um, this is sort of, again, sort of a functional element of, of the economy right now. But one of the key things that sort of emerges, particularly in societies where you have things like universal basic income, is you'll have different prioritization, right? When people don't have to... Um, work to put food on the table. If you take that constraint away from them, then people can pursue much more sort of collective passion projects and things like that. So I think we'll see a lot of people aligning, for example, around choosing platforms, um, choosing communities where um, cryptocurrencies that are you know very focused on low low carbon output, or very focused on fixing um, some of the ecological problems produced by climate change, or providing solutions in that respect, where they may choose new types of currencies or new types of um, investment and um, deployment of their financial resources that fit more with their um, view of the world, their worldview. Um, and so this uh, this has to result in more experimentation more decentralization more sort of uh, cl- you know groups of or collectives, uh, you know, coming together with these sort of mission-based things where they sort of design currencies and they design these tokens to, to operate to, uh, to fit their worldview. So I think um, there's more potential than ever for DeFi that comes out of um, sort of the chaos and people trying different things in this scenario for sure. Um, in terms of the banks, uh, banks are going to have to change banks are going to have to become good corporate citizens. Um, We see protests happening in the UK right now against Barclays and HSBC because of their fossil fuel position. We see the same, um, you know, we see Goldman Sachs saying we're still going to do fossil fuels in recent times in the US. I, I think... Every corporation is going to be judged by different measures, just than the stock market returns or their share price or their profits. I think they're going to be assessed by whether they're good corporate citizens, and I think there's going to be a lot of transparency around that. And I think people will choose to move away from tradfi, where they don't change their behaviour to be, you know, better corporate citizens.
3: So Brent, I guess you know somebody could argue with me on this that my view that. I- Tend to think of these things more in 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 evolutionary time frames than in terms of points, you know, endpoints. You know, you look at the the past 40, 50 years in the US from a political perspective, and we go back and forth between, you know, Democrats and Republicans, and from you know, conservative to liberal, and you know, it goes kind of back and forth as we kind of meander along. So what's post oh. um techno-socialism, what comes after
0: that? Well, really interesting. Well, you know, um, the big change in government um, and governance in in particular, um, you know, at a a national and local level is one about, you know, making sure that the money that the government has is optimally, um, you know, allocated from a resource allocation perspective. So we actually think that representative government will disappear. Right in terms of um, individual members of parliament or individual members of the Senate and, and Congress making decisions on which laws will be put into place or how the budget will be allocated, that increasingly that just becomes algorithm-based or highly automated, and the consensus building around policy, um, you know, has the potential to become real-time. And, and um, you know, uh, we, we argue for a consensus-based mechanism around governance in the book that's quite radically different from today, um, you know, uh, where if you're looking at specific laws that you have to have domain expertise in those areas, you know, et cetera. So, you know, we use the example of virtual Taiwan and, you know, the stateship uh, analogy from from um, you know Socrates and and things like that, so ultimately government becomes just a mechanism of administration over the tools that we use for resource allocation, rather than the sort of voting mechanisms that we have today. It tends to function much more in sh- in real time, you know. Um, so um, that that's from a governance perspective at a local level. At a global level, um, certain things make sense to be global governance. So, um, you know, things like regulation of artificial intelligence, regulation around gene therapy, um, regulation of uh, augmenting humans, transhumanism, you know, the you know ethics around having um, cyber implants and, and these sorts of things. Um, you know, um, you know I, so I think we're going to end up with more sensible sort of global regulations around that with some um, consensus-based mechanisms across national boundaries. Um, but that's purely because, you know, Like just think about AI. Today we're using Chinese AI all the time. If you if you use TikTok as an app using Chinese AI, anyone that's using Facebook is using American AI, you know, uh, around the world. And we've seen, you know, Facebook's AI has produced some pretty drastic effects, right? In in certain countries. Um, and so ultimately, um, you know, AI, it doesn't make sense to just regulate AI at a local level. It, um, you know, it doesn't make sense to regulate carbon output at a local level. You know, it needs to be done, um, you know, across the globe. So that that's the sort of part post-techno-socialism governance that that comes about. I'm not saying a global government, but we are saying global governance, yeah. um, which is a more efficient, it will be a more efficient mechanism.
2: So basically government becomes a DAO, a decentralized yeah, autonomous yes, organization.
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Yes.
3: I, you correct. know, uh, I got another question for you, Brett, but before I, I do that, I, I just I imagine most people listening to this are listening to the podcast and don't see the video, and what most people are missing is that in this discussion of techno-socialism, people are not seeing that Amber <laughs> is drinking her coffee from a feel-the-burn mug, feel the burn. A Bernie Sanders <laughs> feel-the-burn <laughs> Boy, you really got into it today, didn't you? Into
0: the spirit, <laughs> huh? I paid. it.
2: You know, I paid eight whole dollars for that mug. I show it off every chance I get. <laughs> well,
0: well Amber also suggests I send the book to Bernie, so that's probably a good idea. Right? Yeah. yeah, that's a great. No, idea. we got
2: to get him on the line for sure. See what he thinks of all this.
0: So, so Brett, I wanted to share another thought with you. There's something that kind of
3: kept running through my head as I was reading through the book. And to set up this comment, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Tom Robbins, uh, some of his books. I think uh, there was a a line in one of his books I've always remembered. I think it was the book Still Life with Woodpecker, where one of the characters says, there are two types of people in this world. Those who think there are two types of people in this world and those of us who know better. And the reason that that came to mind is because there was a study that I read from a few years ago, which said people were either technology optimists or technology pessimists. And Brett, I've known you for more than ten years now. I've read a lot of what you've written. Yeah, I've you know talked to you a lot. You are a technology optimist. I'm not a technology pessimist. Those are the the stands and so forth. I mean, I tend, but there's your you're a okay. techno skeptic. I'm a techno. I'm a techno realist. I'm, right. I'm. I'm. A, uh, you know. But forget what I am. My my view from reading the book. What kept hitting me was that. You have this technology optimist view, yeah. But there are so many non-technology optimists, whether they're skeptics or pessimists. And how how do they over how do you overcome this this this, this distinction in human nature?
0: Well, you know, part of it is that if you look over the last few hundred years, um, that technology always wins. Right. Whether you're optimistic about it, or whether you're a realist or a skeptic, um, technology's march is relentless. Um, and you know we don't have very many examples at all that technolo- where technology is stopped because it's seen as having a deleterious effect on the community, right? But, but Brett, just-
3: that's not the, that's, I don't think that's the dichotomy. The dichotomy is, and social media is a great example, Man, you go back 15 technology years and there were so the bed, many people right, saying, oh, social media is gonna, you know, you know, democratize everything and give everybody a voice, and you roll the clock forward 15 years, and there's probably nothing more evil on this planet than some of the big the big tech social media. True. So it's not the the whether technology wins or not, yeah. it's the realistic view that they're are always this, these unintended negative consequences from what we tend to believe as having a positive impact. And that's why I thought in the book, I said, There's, you're just not allowing yeah. enough for the unintended impacts and consequences of this.
0: You know what? I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think that, um, you know, I am a techno optimist, and I think we can solve all these problems with the smart application of these technologies. But we've shown our tendency to misuse these technologies. Certainly, technology of late has been used to create far greater divisions around things like COVID vaccines. Um, And... um, Yeah. uh, You know, I I mean, in in the face of some of that evidence, maybe I should be a little bit more uh, pessimistic uh, uh, or sceptical about some of this. But, um, you know, one of the things that makes a a futurist a futurist is we're in a hurry to get to the future, you know, Um, and and we see technology as the gateway for that. Um, And so when we describe the 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 future of humanity in the way we do sort of optimal humanity we describe that with an optimistic view of the use of technology to get us there um, uh, but, uh, you know, when, when we look at things like AI, if we don't have an ethical approach to this, well, you know, I mean, look at what Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk have said about sort of runaway artificial intelligence as an example, where we, you know, we, we don't think about that, the potential for, you know, the risk to humanity is, is significant. Um, and so I think, you know, I think we're going to have to get better at sort of managing that for sure. But yeah, overall, I'm I'm pretty optimistic. I know we got to wrap it up, but um, yeah, overall, I think ultimately, it um, you know, technology can be used for the good of all rather than just a select few, and that's uh, I think that's going to become increasingly necessary.
2: One last question before we wrap it up. I love ending on an optimistic note, but I'm very curious. You mentioned that you had to edit a lot of the book because of the pandemic. It certainly actually added a ton to your argument for techno-socialism, the pandemic. I'm very curious what you edited out of the final version of the book.
0: So I'll just give you an example. You know, when the book started— um, we described the issue of homelessness in, you know, we talked about Skid Row in L.A., um, the fact that the Black Plague was coming back because of the, uh, um, the 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 rats in Skid Row. We talked about the cage homes in Hong Kong and things like this. And we were describing sort of some of the social problems created by inequality. Um, uh, but um, it was a pretty dark way to, um, uh, open the book. So instead, um, you know, the pandemic allowed us to talk about the fact that, um, you know, um, there was a delayed response in respect to sort of pure capitalism and pure market, uh, forces in correcting the issues. And, you know, ultimately, um, you know, like stimulus payments gave a great example of, uh, how we might implement UBI. Um, and so, You know, there were a lot of examples that sort of came out, Um, but the pandemic really accentuated the inequality argument, and so that was um, you know whenever we talked about inequality, we now had new new data to put against that um, throughout the book. Um, But um, I I I think you know I do think that the pandemic probably provide us with with a ton more evidence to support our our core argument that inequality was unsustainable.
2: Perfect. Well, I think we've gone all around the world and back again. Thank you so much for coming on, Brett.
0: Thank you all. Um, you know, for those of you who are listening, um, you know, I appreciate your support of Breaking Banks and the book. And um, and uh, Amber and Ron, thanks for, uh, thanks for putting me on the other side of the microphone. Yeah. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media.
1: We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.